Cinderella, funny fella, running amidst the trees. Who's there? I said as I stood in my head, and nobody answered me. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. And this is Jay bringing up the rear. Welcome again to the Fringeworthy Podcast. Thank you for joining us this week and every week for the Fringeworthy Podcast, where we explore strange new worlds and sometimes strange versions of our own world. Tonight, we are going to be going back into our series of exploring in different parts in time, and we're going back into the far past. This is the time period of the 5th through the 11th century. We have split up the world into various cultures, and various hosts are going to be telling you what we've been able to find out. Starting up first is Trav Pulaski. Trav, what you got? I have the continent of Africa, known as the Dark Continent. Call that mainly because it was very hard to get into because of just very, what's the word I'm looking for, inhospitable terrain. You'd have cliffs and thick jungles, and the European explorers just did not have a good time getting in there. And, of course, there was diseases they weren't used to. 5th to 11th century was a little bit before the Europeans started colonizing, where you had the Belgians and the French and the English and... The two biggest groups that you would have to deal with if you had an Ida team coming through a portal into an African-based society of that time were the Arab cultures who pretty much had the Sahara and North. And then you had all the tribal nations, which had the languages of Zulu and Bantu and whatnot. In the 5th century is when originally in Northern Africa, you had the Berbers which were up there in Algeria, like near Morocco. And then the Arabs came in and started taking over that area after the Romans left. Once camel caravans were started, trains started flourishing all throughout the Sahara. Ideas were exchanged and concepts and art and literature. Well, not literature, but oral traditions and whatnot. Well, no, Arabs had a language back then. So yes, written things began being transferred throughout these caravanserai, I think is the term people in caravans. And so as that culture started up, they started traveling south. And when the relatively more advanced Arab cultures started coming down south, they met up with all these tribal nations. And there was subjugation going on. They they started taking over the tribal nations over the, the course of those 600 years. And there was some from what I read, pretty nasty battles. I mean, they just came in and they did. It just took a lot of these tribal nations over. I mean, some of these rivalries go even today. So, Trav, you mentioned the caravans. How far would a caravan actually go? You know, was there really long caravan routes or were these just between cities? In the Sahara, there weren't a lot of cities. So th- some of these caravans went hundreds of miles. And, and let's see, 5th century... We didn't have the cities of today, so you might have maybe a couple thousand people. And especially in such an inhospitable environment as the Sahara, your cities were based around the resources that you needed. If there was an oasis, after a while, people started meeting there, and they built up settlements. And they were, you know, way stations as you're trying to go through this very inhospitable environment. Where, you know, it can get to be like 120 degrees during the day and then drop down to like 30 degrees at night. Settlements were built, but they had to be built where there was water, obviously, which the mo- which was the biggest commodity in a desert environment. Also, the trans-Saharan trade, I also found out, was into salt. You needed that for, like, food preservation and whatnot. So that was another thing. You needed just to live if you were in such a hot environment. 
Yes, yeah. Um, there were detailed routes because they did it by navigation through the sky, the same as the sailors did. And they just followed certain stars and constellations. And, of course, um, even in the 5th century, the Arabs had a higher than normal level of technology compared to other parts of the world. They had astronomy and mathematics and other sciences. I mean, there, there's a water clock, I believe it is in northern Africa to this day, which runs pretty accurate. And it was made like a thousand years ago, at least. And it was just made from the technology of the time. And the Arabs just had that discipline, that science down cold back then. They were able to facilitate travel with the use of the knowledge that they had. And they spread across the Sahara Desert north. And then they came in through the Middle East and then covered North Africa and then just went south. And after they got out of the Sahara is when they met all these tribal societies that had been living there practically untouched. They were still hunter-gatherer. Um, some of them did have iron. They they learned how to make metal. I mean, because Africa is full of ores and precious minerals and gems. I, me- I remember uh, hearing about the, was it Congolese or something like that, who actually had blast furnaces of sorts? Yes, yes. Of course, they were like one-shot blast furnaces. Basically, you built them, you, you got your ore, and then you tore them apart to get at the ore. Nations were made during this time. Well, back then it was called Ghana. Now it's the nation of Mauritania. They had a lot of gold. And, of course, obviously how the Western world viewed gold, they had gold as decoration. They had dog and cat collars made of gold. To them, it was just something that was lying around. Well, when other cultures came in and just saw these cities of gold, they were just like, you know, standing there with their jaws open, that these people used it so frivolously. And so that facilitated trade. It's like, hey, we have this. If we can have some of your gold that just seems to be, you know, lying around. The tribal societies, as I said, they'd been living as hunter-gatherers for thousands of years. And so all of a sudden came up against these travelers from the north because they, you know, they had lived in a jungle environment or a savanna environment. And this, the desert was an inhospitable barrier so they never travel bothered to travel north and when these arab nations came down from the sahara they were quite overwhelmed by the technology the weaponry the culture and subjugation unfortunately ensued you know modern day we still have that this was all before the europeans jumped into the mix and that was like what 14 1500s when the europeans started colonizing various parts of africa you had you know the belgian congo and the Portuguese came down. Yes, yes, thank you. I was trying to think of another nationality. That, and, of course, the British and the French, and they all came down there and threw their hats in the ring. Yeah. And that's when you had the geopolitical entity started. Because the borders today, they weren't down there. You had a tribal village, and, I mean, their boundary might have been the river. And that river was, you know, used by two nations, and that that was it. That was the line that they drew. The maps that we have today, that's all due to the colonial territorial lines that were drawn by the British, the French, Portuguese, the Spanish, whatever. Yeah, from bases in Egypt, Arabs raided the Berber states to the west. In the 8th century, they conquered Morocco. And after a while, as I said, they covered pretty much the northern part of Africa, and then they started traveling through the south, and they set up settlements there, and then they came in on the tribal societies and said, hello, we're going to take you over. And so you have... By the 8th century, trade across the Sahara was a common thing. So it took them about 300 years to get their networks all set up. As I said, I found a lot more on northern African development than southern African, obviously because there was not a lot of written history going on. And all you have to rely on is oral history from the tribes over the past thousand years. I do have a product which would help if you were to play the Portal Opens at the foot of Mount Kilimanjaro. And it is by Atlas Games, and it is called Niambi African Adventures by Chris Dolent. The book, it's Africa-esque. It is based on African myth and legend and folklore. It gives a lot of good stats on the weapons of the time, the culture, the various types of tribes. Obviously, they modeled them on the tribal nations that were in sub-Saharan Africa. The weapons I'm looking here, and from what they show here, a lot of the weapons are many of the same ones that you would have in the non-African societies, you know, European and whatnot. 
they tell what type of animals are there. Explorers are going to run across various animals. I mean, that's going to be one of the major threats that they have being in the jungle is the indigenous fauna. Or in the savanna, which isn't the jungle, or right. in the mountains, which isn't mm-hmm. either of those either, because it's a big continent. Yes, that, it is. That, and, that, uh, that Niambi book covers a lot of ground and has a lot of really good detail in it. I would well, use it like a prime or, a, or an alt where I had a lot of different adventures set up. I think yes. that's a great idea, Trav, and thanks for finding that because I myself would have you know, really liked to have something that would give it that kind of information as a kickstart into the adventures. We were talking about okay. this beforehand, Trav, uh, that because there is only oral tradition, there's actually a lot of opportunities for the Fringeworthy to go and have adventures that are really divergent from what we would might consider to be in our world because since there are no written records, there's nothing to say it couldn't have happened. So I gave the idea, says, yeah, we could have had UFOs landing in the middle of South Africa uh, or in, in the South uh, African continent. And as long as there wasn't any oral tradition, any, any story that said it didn't happen, then you could just throw that in. So this yeah. is one of those areas of the world where you could really go wild. Anywhere in the Congo Basin is wide open for adventure because we really don't know what happened in there (sighs) even though we have the the fertile crescent the middle east which was the center of quote-unquote civilization pretty much from what our science has said mankind itself was formed well okay formed found first earliest in the african rift valley which is in southeastern africa west of madagascar there is a rift valley in there, and that is where scientists have found where the first humans were to have been found. Bruce's idea about aliens, if you wanted to sit there and dabble with that. Bruce, you had mentioned that the portal gives you the, the language of the area? Yes. Okay. There were hundreds of tribal languages all throughout Africa, and so... That would end up having to be your saving grace because you couldn't have somebody who would just know all of these tribal languages, which unfortunately some of them may be dead. I mean, just after a while, you know, over the centuries, some tribes got wiped out and their culture was lost. That would be your only recourse as far as understanding these tribes. And if, let's say, three or four tribes are in an area, which language would you think? That, that's something I've been thinking about as I've been researching this. My rule has always been whichever la- whichever uh, group had the highest level of technology. Ah, okay. Okay. All right. My rule is always by population. Whichever rule is the biggest population. I, w- I would think that just because you had the most people. You know, you know what mine is? Mine is whatever language is most needed for the adventure to succeed. Yeah. Yeah. GM Fiat. Yes. Uh, but in my case, it was fun because I, they ran into a situation in one adventure where they had two groups that were very close to each other, and one was the higher technology, and they spoke that language. But then they they traded with the the lesser group, and they actually raised their technology high enough, and all of a sudden they couldn't speak to the people they could originally because now they spoke the other group's <laughs> native language. Nice. <laughs> hey, let's give those guys guns so we can talk to them. Exactly. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> so so here's, here's something I want to bring up, and I'm by no means prejudiced in any kind of way, but I'm just imagining most gamers, most conventions I've been, been to, mostly just my observation is uh, role-playing is generally dominated by uh, white males. Yeah. And predominantly people play characters that they can identify with. So I'm just going to say for the sake of argument, because this is not going to be true at all times, but – uh, I found it in my experience from what I've noticed it is that these group of adventurers are going to be a bunch of white people and they're going to be in Africa. So they're going to stand out. And if they're not, then that's cool. Whatever, you know, you, your adventure can go that way. Um, but I'm just saying that for the most part, uh, if you're, you know, if you're playing Frenchworthy and you fit the generic, you know, the generic model of, of, a, of a role player playing Frenchworthy, uh, you're going to be a party of white guys. And this, they're probably uh, going to think you're a, a group of Romans then, because the Romans were a big party of white guys too. The northern, the northern Africa, southern, uh, the southern sub-Saharan Africa, white people. They did, they didn't, never saw them. That they, they didn't start coming down until hundreds of years later when the Europeans started colonizing. If you were in the Sahara, yes, there were people from Europe, and they they came down there often. The Romans were there, so this kind of brings up something that I was going to address during my segment. Okay. Um, 
basically, these are three kind of meta questions that a GM needs to answer about his game, you know, with the input from his players before he starts. If you're doing a real historically accurate recreation of the thing, then you've got some attitudes that people had back in the oh, day that we don't yeah. share. I was just going to bring that up. Thank you, Jay. Yeah. And so me my preference is for a more cinematic, less accurate approach to issues of race, ethnicity, gender, gender roles. But if you're doing a really heavily uh, accurate type of game, your group can cripple itself. Our group in our uh, sample game had a uh, redheaded white female as the leader of the group. In Africa back in the day, people would not know what to make of it in the in the pre-contact times or, or just before the European uh, co- colonization contact with this with these people. Personally, I think gaming is for fun, so I tend to go for the more cinematic side, and I and I tend to leave those kind of issues out because I don't I, want to penalize my players. And you want to stay away from the the big bawana type stereotype, also. Oh yeah, you don't want to. There, there's well, just something you don't want to go to. Yeah, unless unless you're yeah. using him as a villain, people like to kick that guy around these days. But there's also solutions to these problems. You can change the color of your hair. You can take drugs that'll increase your melanin production to the point where you will, in fact, look like someone who is of Negro descent. There was a whole book on that called Black Like Me about a guy who did that. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, Richard Wright, I believe, wrote that. I, I want right. to say it. That hair color disguise kit comes in handy a lot more than you might think. Yeah, and you yeah. can also introduce higher technology, which allows kind of a brown skin paint that's convincing but comes off right. or something, you know. Yeah, you and, the tum- and the tamellum comb changes your hair to whatever color you want it to be. That's right. My, my thing about uh, uh, what Blix brought up about coming in and um, – you're going to have a bunch of white people. Something else, mm-hmm. women on a fringe-worthy team going into Africa of that century. Um, I hate to bring this up, but there are cult um, cultures in Africa today that women are, at best, second-class citizens. And there are some pretty nasty things that are done. I won't bring them up here, this being pod safe. Mm-hmm. If you've read the news, you know what I'm you, – you foreknow nope. what I speak of. There are some times where a woman in a fringe-worthy party taking her life in her own hands just because of the culture that, you know, how they regard women. She could start a firefight with their with the people they're visiting. Yes, exactly. That's where the GM has to take a hand. He has to let the party know whether or not this is going to be a problem by using some subtle hints so they don't go walk blindly into this kind of a situation. And then the players have to let, as you were talking, Jay, that's a meta question where you have to say, okay, if this happens, if we have an adventure where women are treated as second-class citizens, are we just going to hand-wave that away? Or are we going to expect the people playing female characters to hide their uh, sexual identities so that they can pass as young boys or or whatever, you know, so that they they can move along with the party and not be marginalized? I have found that uh, with female players in, in my groups, uh, they will either f- uh, find the question itself unpleasant and not want to deal with it, or they will take special joy in uh, basically casting the bias back in the face of the people that have it and basically starting the trouble that, that we were ta- talking about, expecting that they can be defiant of old-fashioned prejudices and disrespectful of those prejudices and get away with it in-game. That's why I tend to want to downplay these kind of issues, say that uh, foreign women get a pass for being weird and not from, not from around here. Yeah, the, the, local like culture, the local culture will just excuse it as it's their custom. Yeah. Okay, very yes, they, explorers from another land, and this is how they work. Fine. Yeah, you, that, that's the best write-off on that without stepping on anybody's toes and causing a lot of trouble in your gaming group. Exactly. Say you have African-American female on the party. (laughs) That's going to be a problem then, isn't it? (laughs) Possibly, again, you could default to obviously she's a foreigner because her her hairstyle or dress style and and her body language is going to be different. So obviously these crazy people don't treat, treat their women differently and allow them to run loose. Yeah, but somebody who speaks English and sounds English and is dressed like a 17th century sailor, except they have technology on them. No, I'm not going to buy that as a member of my culture unless it's Halloween. Something weird is going on. Yeah. 
I, I think most people are actually kind of biased in favor of their own culture to the point where a lot of people would actually miss that aliens are turning up speaking their language very precisely, kind of the way we watch Star Trek. Oh, yeah, of course they're talking. Somebody else would go, how did they learn our language so well? And, you know, maybe one out of ten people would ask that question. The rest of everybody would say, well, of course they're talking. What else do you do? Now, one place you may actually not find this as bad, I would think, is near is around port cities because strength keeps showing up all the time. Travelers, yes, yes. Places that well, John, are more cosmopolitan and have more yeah. travelers coming in and out and merchants, yeah. Well, John, we, we talked about this on another podcast where <laughs> we simply came we came to the conclusion that it's not a matter of just language. Okay, there's there's all kinds of other things. There's there's choice of dress. We're talking about body language. Even if you speak flawless local language, they're gonna know in a very short period of time yeah. that you're not from around there. There's too many tells. Do too many th- cultural cues that you're not going to be picking up on or giving to them. See, most Western females are going to be defiant, no matter how hard they try to be subservient. They're going to be defiant in their act- in their behaviors. Well, the best thing to do, in my opinion, is if you're going to go into any culture where you think there might be this kind of a problem like that, then you immediately elevate any woman in your party to the level of royalty. <laughs> this is Princess Sabrina. This is Princess Yvonne, Countess, or whatever. Because all of a sudden, when people think of them as royalty, yeah. they get, as you said, they give them a pass. I like that idea. And I think yeah. most of my female players would also quite like that idea to the mm-hmm. point of – being princess whoever <laughs> at all points straight in the game. <laughs> From that point on, right? Yep. Yeah, though they won't let you forget it even after you go back through the portal. Uh, of course I'm Princess Sabrina. Uh, you know, you can let it drop now. We're back at Hutsumi Base. Oh no. Oh peasant. <laughs> it's like I just, what's the thing? I, what's I just thing got you broken about? in. <laughs> what, what's the thing about cats? It's like they 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 were once worshipped in ancient Egypt, and they haven't forgotten that that no longer stands. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> dogs have owners, cats have staff. Yes, that's right. Um, exactly so. I don't know because I know you guys have done a recent podcast on magic and psionic use in the mm-hmm. game. Mm-hmm. I'm behind on that, them. So that I was have, a while ago. What's uh, what's your issue? Um, well. Because of the and, – and this is something I would personally add in, but that's just because that's I like adding these type of things to a game. Africa has a rich tribal folklore, and they have their witch doctors and their, their medicine men. Throwing that into the mix, because you had mentioned, Bruce, I believe that if magic is usable on one prime or one of the alternates, it's usable throughout the entire uh, tree oh. – yeah, the whole node. Yeah. Okay. Actually, I thought it was, it was on the prime. It's used to the whole tree. That's the way. That's the way I would do it. I would nope. say it all may or may not. What we said, John, was is that the same rules of reality are unless it's an other place on the uh, as an alternate, it holds true throughout the entire node. And uh, even in Niambi, they obviously because it's a it's an enclosed game, so they have their own magic system for the various classes that you can have as a, a character in the setting. Well, you could obviously, you know, use the spells in here or just use the ones from D20 Modern and tweak them to where well, these tribal shamans and, you know, modern 21st century explorers are just going, yeah, okay, fine, you know, it's smoke and mirrors, la-di-da, and all of a sudden fire erupts from his hand. The explorers are going to have a whole new facet to have to deal with. And it's just something that I would throw in kind of just because the folklore is there. These tribes have thousands of years of these stories and these mythos at their disposal. And that's something that a good GM could tap into and really throw a corkscrew at their players when they realize, hmm, (laughs) this person is manipulating the weather with a, you know, a day long incantation, you know, or they can douse water, which obviously even in a savanna or in a non-desert African environment would be extremely useful. Actually, I was, I was watching one show uh, about, uh, it was actually about water in, in, in the, in various places. And uh, this was, I think it was in, uh, it was in the uh, Arabian Peninsula, but it probably applies to uh, places in Africa too, in that same, same general area. They have these various um, underground springs they tap into, 
but to do so, they've had they they made these un, these uh, underground rivers by hand to direct the water, and these guys crawl down with with torches, and if 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 they're lucky, uh, you know maybe flashlights, and they're like about uh, just a couple thousand feet underground looking for new springs, and then they're trying to crawl through this underground river to get back out again because they can't go back up the well they came down in the first place. God, yeah, I'm, just looking, I'm looking at that going, oh, my God. And the thing is, and they said this is a thousands-year-old technology, so this is around then. These, these people, you need water? You will go to great lengths to get water. <laughs> well, yeah, because even in a non-desert environment like the savanna, Yes, you're out there. There's very little shade. It's going to get hot. So yeah, water in in pretty much most of Africa, I would imagine, the biggest commodity is water. That's why in what uh, the Kingdom of Ghana back in the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth century, gold was everywhere. They used it as decoration. There were pet collars made of gold. They didn't see it as currency. They didn't see it as a precious metal. To but them, water was their deal, wasn't it? Right, and as I said also, salt was a big trade item because obviously yeah. you needed it for preservation of food because we didn't have, like Chris Rock said, we didn't have saran wrap, we didn't have preservatives, we didn't yeah. have refrigerator. You had salt. You had salted beef, um, well, not for the Arabs, salted pork, but for other cultures yeah. you had salted pork. So salt was a very big commodity. Salt, pepper, all the, yeah. all the spices were big trade issues back in the day. Well, yeah, that's why the British went to India and they found all their spices. But yes— the African continent between tribal versus Arab, you could walk through a portal and uh, end up in the middle of a battlefield. You know, walk through oh, a yeah. war, and you're like looking at one side, you see you know a bunch of Arab soldiers over here, and on the other side, you're seeing you know the Zulu nation ready to go at it, and you're just like, hey, look, I forgot to leave something <laughs> at home. Go back through the portal. Want to get caught in the middle of that? <laughs> Sorry, I left the cat on. I, I yeah, turned yeah, off the exactly, dog. Right. And you have the whole, if you're dealing in Northern Africa, most likely you are dealing with the Arab culture, and therefore you have to kind of tap dance with that because they also had their societal views on women. Yep. So, again, with a female explorer on the team, you'd have to, you know, okay, get out the veil and this, that, and the oh. other. and Right. But the Arab culture didn't really start, if we're talking about Islam, until the 7th century. I well, there still were the Persians. I mean, the Persian Empire existed well, back then. Now, uh, the Persian Empire, the Persian Sassanid Empire, this is, now we're getting into the area I was reading up on. The, there were Arabs uh, prior to Islam, and there was an Arab culture prior to Islam. And those people did move around what we now call the Arabian Peninsula quite, quite a bit. Uh, they were good at raising horses, and they were good at uh, riding them. And so they had high mobility, and they moved all around that area. What we now know is Islam kind of started as a cross between a group of bandits and a nut cult and, and grew – To what uh, we have today. Yeah, to, to what we have today. Now we were discussing the Persian Empire. Uh, the classic Persian Empire before uh, Islam was called the Sassanid uh, Empire. And they battled uh, Byzantium and Rome. They spent a lot of time. Uh, they owned the entire Middle East and parts of uh, – into Egypt and northern Africa – at their at their greatest extent, but they yeah spent I, I do see that um, Islamic armies invaded Africa within a decade of Muhammad's death in 632 and quickly overcame Byz Byzantine resistance in Egypt. Yes, okay, yeah, you're right. Yeah, on that. So so uh, what happened is the the pre-Islamic Sassanid uh, dynasty spent itself into oblivion, uh, trying to battle the the Byzantine Empire. And suddenly, out of, coming out of the uh, Arabian Peninsula, here's Islam and the uh, and and these guys on the horses, and they just ro rolled right over the classical world. But they were spreading the, the the word of their new religion, Islam. But they weren't as uptight about things like culture, writing, literature, architecture. So the pre-Islamic Sassanid Empire really flavored what the Persian Empire really flavored subsequent. Uh, Islamic culture, and it also set kind of a precedence for these guys in that um, they didn't care what your ethnic background was just so long as you were willing to either convert or not challenge their authority. They, did, they, they were good, and they moved on to the next thing.
is that a lot of the uh, peasants in uh, in the former Sassanid dynasty were actually happier under the uh, Islamic uh, conquest because the Islamics had something called I'm not making it up jizyat. J J I Z Y A T, which is basically a not an Islamic tax, and even then, that was less than they were paying to the Sassanids to try to pay for the Byzantine War. So they got a break on their taxes. You know, they 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 pay off the warlords, and everybody's all good with it. And and so this is how these guys kind of uh, rolled. Uh, they set up something called the Caliphate, and the Caliphate is parallel to uh, the papacy. In the uh, Church of Rome, okay. in some ways, uh, and what happens is you see what uh, you see the Islamic world as this large block of color from North Africa all the way over to the tip of India. But it wasn't all one thing. It was a classic empire that contained lots of small sub kingdoms and principalities and areas that all owed fealty to this one guy, the Caliph. And there were times when the Caliph was strong. And then uh, everybody paid attention to what he said. And there are times when he was weak, and basically he was a front man for some guys behind the throne. Uh, Jay, would that be due to the caliph's power within his term, or would it be, okay, this successor, this guy, this caliph, yeah, he was great. He had all cylinders firing. Now, in the er- in the er- er- was an idiot. You know, what did you have that going on? In the early caliphate, you did. Uh, however, in the later in the later periods of time, getting up towards the end of our uh, 11th century cutoff, uh, what you had was uh, that was people would defy the caliph and the strength of his and the strength of the kingdom he had to call on is what told whether or not he was really a power within the uh, within the Islamic world. So, in other uh, words, the ruler was only as good as the nation that he ruled. Yeah, he was only as good as okay. the well, uh, like Stalin said. Uh, how how many di- how many divisions does the uh, Vatican have? You know, they they have an opinion, but where but but where's the real firepower coming from? Early on, in during the period we're talking about, from about uh, 633 in the founding of Islam, all the way up to the end of the time period we're talking about, who's 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 the caliph and who's in charge is a really important thing, and this is also an issue for. Any kingdom that you run into during this period of time, and on almost any of the settings we're talking about, the crown carries a lot of power, and people descend to vile depths quickly to get their hands on it. And so there's a lot of very adventurous things going on in regards to uh, uh, the succession to thrones, who controls succession, and what faction any given heir to a throne is allied with. So you could have… Princes and princesses all over the place in this area that that traditionally is kind of looked at as kind of a unified zone. It wasn't. Oh yeah, you had all sorts of uh, inner house politics going on. You have that yes. in any kingdom. Um, and so uh, a, a fringeworthy group might be sent to try to bolster an allied faction or uh, try to make peace between two uh, spatting factions. And uh, a GM really has a wide open area to basically make some stuff up and put some characters in the place. Uh, I'm using mostly Wikipedia for my research because this is a role playing game and what it's about is entertaining uh, the players. Uh, If you're doing an actual school assignment, don't trust Wikipedia. I've heard of professors actually editing Wikipedia's pages on their subject to include disinformation so they could spot the people who just looked it up at Wikipedia at the last Evil. minute. Oh, yes. I, I, even, <laughs> even chemistry teachers I have heard, they have yes. said, do not use but, Wikipedia for your source. So, yes, you know, for, for the purposes of GMing and making yes. adventures, Wikipedia, Wikipedia is your friend. Yes, yes. indeed. I, do, I was thinking of something, because uh, I was thinking about what kind of adventures you're going to have in Africa. And one thought crossed my mind, it's straight out of Indiana Jones, and that's uh, looking for the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant. Because theoretically, it's either in uh, Ethiopia, or it's in South Africa with the Limba people. Hmm. Okay. Well, we can't determine determine that here in our in our world. Hey, you know, it's someone else's world. Maybe we can steal into that little church and see if there is an ark in there or not. 
You also have uh, the Valley of the Kings in Egypt, which uh, in a historical period of time, some of those tombs might not have been looted yet. And uh, a team might be sent through to try to secure a tomb and keep grave robbers from robbing it before a UN archaeology team could come in and rob it. Getting into one of those tombs that right now are just they were totally trashed, like uh, Ramesses' tomb, which was basically, I hate to say, trashed by floods. Getting in there and yep. seeing everything the way it was yep. before it was trashed. Something like that could be a very it could be a very powerful uh, adventure adventure hook. The area I was looking at uh, right now, uh, I looked up in uh, for the Persians. Who's a Persian hero? Well, we know one name of a guy who gets hung with uh, the the hero uh, image for the Persian area, and that's Sinbad. It turns out Sinbad is right down the middle of the area we're talking about. And yeah, he was an Arabic uh, sailor who looked who uh, interacted with powerful people all around uh, his area and discovered a lot of things that were borrowed from Greek mythology and borrowed from other people's mythology, apparently having been transplanted into the Indian Ocean. And a GM can have a lot of fun having, uh, having fringeworthy teams uh, try to sail around the Arabian Sea, the Persian Gulf, uh, and, uh, and the Indian Ocean, trying to make friends and influence people while raking in lots of gold and trying not to get eaten by monsters. Yes. Oh, yeah, the, the cities and everything was still there. You had, um, oh, what is the one city that was destroyed? Carthage. Carthage. That, they're right. still ruined today. Carthage of Galinda Est. Oh, by the but, way, do, uh, beware. I did a search for Carthage. There's a website in North Africa for Carthage, the theme park, but it's a virus <laughs> hit. Don't go there. Trust me. Ah, gotcha. Yeah. Noted. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the thing about... Africa and the role playing is that because of the rich, vibrant history of other cultures coming in, you could play off if somebody looks a little different. Mm -hmm. And again, and the interior of the continent may not play well so much, but as Jay mentioned earlier, port cities, very cosmopolitan. And of course, you have lots of shoreline there in Africa, all along, you know, Northern Africa, of course, you had everything from Europe. And along the eastern coast of Africa, as you're heading south on the long continent, you had a lot of Indian influence. And today, there's a huge Indian contingent in that part of Africa. So, yes, they did, uh, along the coast, they had trade even back then. So, if you looked a little un-African, for lack of a better term, you might have a chance to fit in. You'd have to think on your feet and come up with a real good cover story. But you could pull it off. I think uh, just we're traders from way over there. Yeah. would be just fine. They have good yes. cultural mechanisms for dealing with that. Yeah. Tarzan and the Lost Empire. The Lost Empire was the Roman Empire <laughs> in the mountains of Africa. Why not? The thing about Africa is that with the Romans pulling out, there still wasn't a lingua franca set up because the Arabs had come through and they, when they, they came in and there was a slow conversion to Islam because many of what, what's the ethnicity Mecca uh, Arabs raided the Berber States to the West in the eighth century. They conquered Morocco while the coastal Berbers began converting to Islam. Many others retreated in the Atlas into the Atlas mountains and beyond into the Sahara. There were still Arab minorities uh, that established autocratic po policies in Algeria and Morocco, but there, they came in and they conquered Christian states, and then they started up with the trade, and that's when they just spread. They, uh -huh. Once they got the camels' uh, exploration started up in the 5th century, they started moving around, and by as I said, it took them 300 years to get the, the trans-Saharan trade to where it became commonplace. Yeah. One of the things that the Arabs did uh, was they was they did kind of encourage trade of both the illicit uh, mercantile kind of trade and the illicit slaves and piracy. Uh, if it was turning over a buck, they were they were kind of good for it. And so that's part of why they grew and came to dominate the uh, the classical world by uh, by the 11th to 12th century. Mm. Western Africa, a number of kingdoms emerged their entire economic base 
ended up becoming part due to this trans-Saharan trade. And they were trading things, uh, gold, which, as I said, you know, was literally lying around them. Once they found out that, hey, you know, we, you know, have all this and they can give us stuff in return, they traded gold and cola nuts and unfortunately slaves. They were sent north in exchange for cloth, utensils, and salt. Then we get into another question about uh, historical accuracy versus yeah. uh, gameplay. Uh, the people of, of these eras pretty much universally were had attitudes we would consider really unpleasant and brutal. Right, and, and I mean, so, you, would, you would use and so them. so GM has to kind of, yeah, well, kind of has you, to decide. And, yeah, that's where you would come up and say, okay, the players would come up and say, all right, you know what, we're seeing this, we're not going to be changing our history, we need to stop this. Let's say they come upon a village where, unfortunately, slavery is practiced. These idiots have automatic weapons at their disposal. You know, they could just come in and, you know, stop that. I mean, that could be something. And if you don't glorify these bad things, let's say if the villains are the ones that are doing this, well, then the idiots putting down a bad guy and they're helping promote peace. I mean, that that's something that they could do. You could work that into a game. But if you're it, it, it's like the old comic code authority. You're not glorifying bad things. I mean, we don't want to do that. That's yeah, not something yeah. we want to perpetuate. So, so yeah. if we're if we're going to have slavers, if we're going to have people with this brutal attitude, try to keep them on the bad guy side, so the players right, exactly. can feel good about riddling them with bullets and getting them out of the way. Well, right, yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> the, only, the only problem I have with um, the whole slavery issue in, in the ancient world and such is that it's not like there was one culture or anything. It, it was pretty much a worldwide phenomenon for the most part. Not everywhere, of course, but. It was more predominant than it wasn't throughout the world. So oh, no. it's kind of yeah. Like I said, it's just about universal. Yeah, oh, yeah. There, so there are also uh, a small minority of people, pretty much ever since the institution was invented, who have spoken out against it. There have been abolitionists and people who said it was a bad idea from the right. word go, but nobody seemed to listen to them until about the 1840s. Yeah, well, that's because machinery came around and made yeah. uh, the, the slave trade obsolete. If you have decent working machinery, it can outperform slave labor. The types of inventors that IDET teams could have in 5th to 11th century African alternates, as I said, you could do uh, humanitarian missions. Let's say mm-hmm. you have droughts or, in some cases, floods or a sandstorm. Or a plague, or right. you know, the IDET with their 21st century technology, and if they have happened to have access to a bit of Termelern technology, they could work literally to these 5th to 11th century Africans miracles, and then they would come up as seen as gods. Right. Oh, you know, leprosy can be cured with antibiotics. Right. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Well, leprosy it's it's a it's a bacterial infection. Okay. Um, Thank you. I, I actually didn't uh, know that. But but still, uh, various other types of missions that IDET personnel could do in these, as I said, a lot of them, humanitarian missions, rescue missions. I mean, obviously, you're going to have combat if you're either dealing with ideological or against the local fauna. You could be camping and all of a sudden something attacks you from the jungle Well, or the savanna. Well, then you're going to have to fight. I mean, you could be fighting against the elements themselves, as I said, just trying to get through a sandstorm. Or here comes a, a another question, and yes. I think this is a something we may want to table until later. Uh, what if there's a rival fringeworthy crew trying to win friends and influence people on a world that your IDET team is trying to do? Is there any mechanism that we have for actually? Having that and not having it turned into a shootout on the uh, platform. Oh, you mean like uh, fringe pirates are there messing around on that world? Well, perhaps fringe pirates or perhaps the Chileans or ASA. Or the Victorians. <laughs> Somebody whose goals are to rival our IDET team, but uh, who's, uh, but like I say, that doesn't turn into a shootout the moment they spot each other. Right. Well, that really comes down to your game system. 
If your game system has good social mechanics in it, or if you're able to leverage your systems in such a way that you can have good social mechanics, then you're... I'm going to disagree with you, Bruce. I don't think that's a matter of the game system. I think that's a matter of how your players like to play. Uh, If your players refuse to engage in in that, then you're right. But But there's a lot of cases where there simply hasn't been a good way of, of being able to work toward an agreement where you ended up coming down to one of these situations where, you know, you go and um, you, you make the role that you won the diplomacy, they agreed, but then later on they, 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 they have, uh, uh, I don't know, buy, you know, buyer's remorse and then they, they arm up and come back after you. A good social mechanic allows you to, actually make up an agreement that works for both sides and they're actually more invested in it. But a lot of times this, okay. pro- this, this process isn't, you know, if unless it's spelled out in some way that, and a I lot of role players aren't used to it because they're used to co- solving their problems by killing things. Yeah. Um, like I say, I, I don't think, I don't attribute that so much to game system as to what sort of play game your players uh, like to play. Talking more of a matter of actually Having characters stay in character and having different goals being uh, pursued using talk and, 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 and discussion and diplomacy rather than I shoot him right. as a – but I've seen situations where people really wanted to come to an agreement with somebody Basically, and they just couldn't figure out how to do it within the game system. Yeah. Again, that, then that's the GM not actually having the characters be there as characters to interact with. I don't think that's a game system issue. Yeah. <laughs> well, this isn't the place for that discussion. Okay. But, yeah. So, but I, and I would be gladly have that discussion with you uh, okay. on another podcast. <laughs> well, sure. Hey. Or you know, <laughs> we can we can hammer out our our positions more carefully in like an email or something, and then we could dis- uh, then we can talk yeah. about it on a podcast in a cooperative <laughs> manner. How about we do that? Fine. <laughs> okay. Hey, actually, actually, yeah. that would be that would be a good uh, show episode. Is is talking about about that. But hey, I got some ideas for adventures in, in the uh, in the African setting. We don't have a, a plethora of information in that era of Africa and and on the continent of Africa. For the most part, for the majority of the continent, we're dealing with people who are you know just out of the Stone Age, basically. So what I'm thinking is two good adventures. One would be the heroes show up. You know, they're talking with the natives. They're doing the whole uh, explorer angle. They're sent there to find out what they can find out or to see what they can see and report back. And one of the, the natives is, is being friendly with them and talking with them, maybe the witch doctor or whatever of some tribe. And he mentions a, a, a lion statue and in the lion's hand is a, is a pale blue crystal that they haven't been able to remove or that they have left alone for sacred reasons. You know, and the party's thinking, oh, my God, a pale blue crystal. You know, and then there, there's an adventure traveling through, you know, traveling through the, the jungle and dealing with the animals and maybe rival natives and such and, and finding this lost city that has this – and it turns out it's a Tremelin city or, or, or it was a Tremelin, you know, influenced city or perhaps, you know, the, the natives there had seen a Tremelin or, or had known a Tremelin and they kind of sort of pseudo-worshipped him or, or, or idolized him in some way and made a statue of him and he left a crystal behind for them and – um, or for you know future travelers to find, or maybe he I don't know maybe he was killed and he dropped it or whatever. You know another adventure I was thinking of, and this is prime for this kind of thing is a rescue mission. You know a team went in there before and disappeared, and your team is going in to try and find them. And those are those are just two really good adventures for this type of the you know th- this part of the world during this time period. Yeah, that, that's a very good question. The, the fact that this African 5th to 11th century historical alternate, let's say there was, at one time, they had Tremelor and Influencer. Maybe even this world was a member of the Commonwealth at one time, but just after a while they drop back and they just don't, we don't go there. And you all of a sudden have the explorers realizing that this world had that level of influence from the, com- from the old Commonwealth. That that's very good, Blix. I, I do like that idea. And they would see them as some form of deity. And because of the Termelern's anthropomorphic look, yes, they would be just seen as maybe nature spirits and their technology would just be seen as magic, like the old Arthur C. Clarke uh saying. But yeah, I, I do like that idea, Blix. I like Jay, um, you kind of like jumped in on um 
Trav's uh, presentation. Uh, do you want to take over and, and do more on your side of it? Okay. Um, I apologize. It, it, I didn't it, mean it, to it, jump me on a, Trav. No, no, no. I, I don't mean it that way. You, you came in and, and you talked about something that was very applicable to what he was talking about. I know that you only talked about a part of what you wanted to talk about. So, uh, Trav, do you have more that you want to cover? or do we pass no, it on? Actually, because of what Jay brought up and how that part of the world interacted with mine and allowed for the filtering down of the Arabic cultures, I would say that actually it would be a perfect segue into what Jay has to say. So I would think I'm done. <laughs> Thank you again for joining us for the Fringeworthy Podcast. We'll be back next week, maybe not with this particular subject. We'll be continuing in the future as more and more of these cultures are examined and shown as great places to adventure in the far past. So until next week, remember, this is Bruce Sheffer telling you that there's million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. This is John Ryer. Remember, history is a different country. People do things differently there. This is Blix. Scimitars speak louder than words. And this is Trav, mixing gaming, comedy, music, and snark weekly on DementiaRadio.org. Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. This is Jay. I need a good tagline here. Have a good night.